0: Today we're reading from Psalm chapter 85. The title is, For the Director of Music of the Sons of Korah, a psalm. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps.
1: Okay. Well, thanks very much. Uh, It's lovely to be back with you again uh, and have the opportunity to open God's Word with you. Uh, Can I please ask you to open up your booklets uh, to the outline, which will help you uh, follow along what I'm going to talk about for the next 25 minutes or so. Um, It would be great also if you have a Bible in front of you. Um, I understand that verses will come up on the screen at different points. It'll actually be more useful for you to have a Bible in front of you uh, so that you can see as we move around. You can grab them from the back if you need that. Um, as we come to Psalm 85. Uh, As Mike said, uh, we're spending three weeks uh, looking at Psalms 84, 85 and 86. Uh, Last week, the God who blesses. This week, the God who forgives. And next week, the God who answers. And what I tried to say last week as we began this series uh, was that the key to the Psalms is what they tell us about what God is like. That's first and foremost the most important thing Uh, They're not descriptions of how we are to live and what we should do. I tried to say that because, if nothing else, uh, the Psalms are set in a time and a place that is very distant and remote from us, uh, hundreds of years before Christ, uh, at a time where actually God is interacting with his people and his world in a different way than he is now. Uh, Likewise, as you read the Psalms so often, conscious of the fact that if we just tried to follow the examples there, we'd fall short anyway. Uh, so, key to the Psalms, as it says at the top of your handout there, what God is like, not what we should do. And that's what I want us to focus on today. In the same way as we did it last week, firstly, what the Psalm says about God. And then secondly, how it points us to Jesus, uh, who is the one who shows us most clearly what God is like. And then thirdly, some thoughts about our response. Uh, so here we go, what Psalm 85 says about God, point one. Uh, it's another song. Uh, you can see that from the heading there. Uh, it's of the sons of Korah, a particular type of song, a psalm. Uh, and once again, like last week, it's divided into three, uh, let's call them stanzas, not verses, because that'll be a bit confusing with verse numbers, the three stanzas. Uh, there aren't a lot of specifics about the psalm, uh, but clearly, as you heard it read, you'd heard that it's divided into past, present, and future. Okay, Past, present, and future. And they correspond to verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 7, and verses 8 through 13, respectively. Uh, firstly, the past, uh, which I've headed the good old days, the good old days, verses 1 through 3. Uh, let me read that again for us. Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 85. Uh, you, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Uh, if you think about an epic song, maybe a ballad, uh, that you've heard, that you know, that often runs around in your head, uh, you'll realize that often epic songs begin with a backstory. Uh, they begin with something from the past, and so it is for Psalm 85. Great songs begin uh, with with a backstory. It's the, it's the case here for the sons of Korah. Uh, they're recalling a time when God uh, says there, verse one, God had shown favor to His people. Uh, in fact. Uh, we're told there, verse 1, he restored the fortunes of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is just a reference to Israel, to the nation of Israel. Uh, the sons of Korah are reflecting on time when God has delivered his people. Now, unfortunately, we don't know the exact episode that he's referring to, that they're referring to. It's possible, given what he talks about, what they talk about later, that they're referring to a famine. It's possible, actually, that they're looking back after the exile after Israel had been uh, defeated by the Babylonians and God had restored uh, his people 70 years later, it's possible that that's what the sons of Korah are referring to. uh, But we just don't know. Uh, And in many ways it doesn't matter. Because what Psalm 85 describes is a simple conviction that we are all sinful to the core and that God's wrath and anger must follow our iniquity. But... God is a God who forgives. And when he does, there is nothing more liberating than to be confronted with the extent of your sin and, at the same time, to realise that you have been forgiven. The way Psalm 85 begins is we're reminded to us that to speak truthfully about God means resisting the temptation to be selective or one-sided. To talk about God, God means to talk about all that he is like. And so, if when we talk about God, we don't speak of his wrath, people will have no reason to listen to him. Uh, On the other hand, if we don't speak of his forgiveness, sinners will have no reason to come forward and to come to him. So, Psalm 85 begins with the sons of Korah thinking about the good old days, about what God has done for him in the past. And so then we come to the second part of the psalm, stanza two, uh, verses four through seven, which I've headed, here we go again. So let me read these verses for us. Verses four through seven. Uh, Restore us again, God our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord. Grant us your salvation. Uh, We come to the present situation now, and the reason why, apparently, the sons of Korah have written this song. Uh, Once again, we don't know what it is that the people have done, but it's clear from God's response of words there like his displeasure, his anger, which is actually referred to twice, it's clear that in some way God's people have sinned again. And so this song has been written because they need for God to do for them what he has done before. They need him to restore them, to revive them, to show them his unfailing love, to grant his salvation. Now, of course, uh, God's people can't bargain with God at this point. They can't appease God. They can't right their own wrongs or they can't atone for their sins Their only hope is that God will forgive them and that he'll forgive them of his own accord because of what he's like, because forgiveness is in his nature and in his being. You and I know that to be true from our own experience. Uh, If you have unfortunately offended someone, uh, no matter what you do, you cannot force someone to forgive you. You cannot compel someone to forgive you. Uh, They must do so of their own accord. And until they do so, nothing can restore your relationship. Uh, Perhaps that's the reason why the first two stanzas in Psalm 85 are directly addressed to God. Do you notice that? Verse 1, you, Lord, showed favor to your land. Verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your sin. Verse 3, you set aside all your wrath. It's as if the sons of Korah are reminding God of what he is like. Uh, Not that he forgets, but if you think about it, if you need someone to forgive you, to start by reminding that they are forgiving, that's a pretty good opening, isn't it? Well, that leads us then into the third and final stanza and the hope and conviction that the sons of Korah have that God will forgive because of what he is like. And so we come then to part three, Our Only Hope, verses 8 through 13. Uh, Let me read these last parts of Psalm 85. Verse 8. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Now in this last stanza, verse 8 is actually critical. Uh, Verse 8, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Uh, I say verse 8 is critical because it's the only time in the whole psalm that the sons of Korah actually talk about themselves and what they will do. You remember how I began by saying that the key to reading the psalms is not about our response, it's about what God is like. So what's going on here? Well, look very carefully at verse 8 and what it is that the sons of Korah actually do. Verse 8, they resolve to listen. They resolve to listen to what God the Lord says. Of course, we know that listening is the very opposite of doing. It is passive, not active. To listen means to trust in God's promises, uh, not to somehow try to earn his favour. Because the point of Psalm 85 still is what God is like first and foremost not what we ought to do. And yet some, uh, the third stanza goes even further than the rest of the psalm. Because what stanza three says is that God promises more than just a, a grudging forgiveness of our sins. Verse eight, he promises peace to his people. Now when you see the word peace there, it, that word means more than just the absence of hostility or the end of conflict, the word for peace there, it describes the joy of a full and complete restoration, of being reconciled, of having a broken relationship healed in entirety. And you see the extent of God's forgiveness in verse 9, when, verse 9, Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. His glory may dwell in our land uh, shows the full extent of God's forgiveness because the proof that you are completely forgiven is if you invite someone who had been an enemy to stay in your home. If you do so, if they come, it is proof that there is no animosity left. It's pretty exciting actually. Uh, that gives rise, of course, to the lovely, extravagant imagery in verses 10 through 13. Uh, just have a look there, verse 10. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth. Righteousness looks down from heaven. Uh, it's extravagant imagery, isn't it? Uh, one, of, uh, one of the staff I work with when we read this passage, they actually started giggling uh, when they got to these words. You know, Love and faithfulness... Meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Uh, I'm not sure what image springs to mind for you when you think of righteousness and peace kissing each other, love and faithfulness meeting each other. Uh, here's what came to mind for me as I thought about it. I thought of um, some continental Europeans, you know, maybe like a Frenchman or an Italian. They, they meet each other on the boulevard. Hey, how are you going? And you know, they start air kissing. It's so good to see you know, that sort of picture that comes to mind. It's saying that, having been forgiven by God, love and faithfulness and righteousness, they are everywhere. They overflow in abundance. These are powerful, evocative descriptions of what life in a community where God's glory dwells is meant to be like. Because love, faithfulness, righteousness, righteousness, These are qualities which first and foremost emanate from God himself. So, to sum up, what does Psalm 85 tell us about God? It tells us that his past action gives confidence for how he will act in the future. And that shapes how we're to live today. And it says that God's forgiveness changes everything. Okay, so that's point one. What Psalm 85 says about God. Point two then, how does Psalm 85 point us to Jesus? Uh, At the start, I said that uh, the sons of Korah had hope based on what God had done for them in the past. So for you and I today, how much more confident are we of what God is still to do for us given what he has done for us already? Not just in Old Testament Israel but in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many ways in which we could see this. I've picked just one. Uh, Did you notice that Psalm 85 never explained how God could forgive? It only talked about why we needed God to forgive us. And at the same time, thankfully, it assured us that he would do so. But it never explained how it is that God can forgive sin. Which raises the question, uh, what happens to our sin which God says that he will forgive? Because he cannot ignore it. Every victim of sin knows that it would be manifestly unjust if God just ignored sin. God therefore must punish sin before it can be forgiven. And that, of course, brothers and sisters, is where we see the full glory of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed. Uh, Unfortunately, it might be on the screen. Is 2 Corinthians 5 on the screen at this point? Yes, thank you. 2 Corinthians 5. Look at how the Apostle Paul reflects on what it is that the Lord Jesus has done. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is often described as the great exchange. You see that there was one who had no sin, that's the Lord Jesus. God makes him to be sin for us. And the exchange is that we become the righteousness of God. On the bottom of your handout, uh, you'll see there, I said each week that I give you a little picture or an image that might help you reflect on what's going on. That's exactly what that picture is trying to describe. The exchange that takes place. One who has no sin takes our sin, and in return, he gives us his very righteousness. Because the point about sin is that someone must bear our sin, someone must bear the consequences of sin. Here's the choice. Either you bear the consequences of your sin or someone else does. Those are the only two possibilities. But thanks be to God, at the cross of the Lord Jesus, he takes our sin onto himself. Uh, Or in fact, to be more accurate, at the cross... God takes our sin into himself. Uh, the image, in fact, I think, of 2 Corinthians 5 is of self-absorption. That is, our sin is first and foremost an offence against God. You have go through a lot of different seasons here, don't you, at Trinity Grave? Our sin is first and foremost an offence against God, As you know, only the victim has the right to forgive sin. Only the victim has the right to absorb the cost. Only the victim has the right to grant forgiveness. We feel that. We know that when someone else tries to pardon that for which they were not the victim. Uh, You see this every now and then in America when uh, the president gives a presidential pardon for a convicted You know, offender. And you see the outrage from the victim's families. He has no right to do that. By contrast, uh, the picture of 2 Corinthians 5 is that God is the one against whom we have sinned. Therefore, only God can forgive. Uh, I wonder if you can see how much better off we are than the sons of Korah. Uh, The sons of Korah, they recalled a time when God had forgiven them And for that, they're deeply thankful, but they didn't know how he could do so. You and I, uh, we look back now and we see that Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And if that's what we see, how much greater will the transformation be in us now? I said that I try and give you a picture each week to help you remember what the psalm is about, perhaps to shape you in the week ahead. And there's a there's a little diagram there. But um, actually verbal pictures at times can be memorable and in particular songs can really make this point. Now, don't worry, I'm not about to sing. That would be memorable for all the wrong reasons. But in a moment, we're going to sing this very song. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my my guilt within. Up would I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Well, what Psalm 85 says about God, how Psalm 85 points us to the Lord Jesus, finally then, just a couple of reflections of what Psalm 85 says to us today. At the bottom of your handout, I've printed a question there for you. If Jesus has taken all our sins on him, why do we continue to confess them? If Jesus has taken all our sins on him, why do we continue to confess them even though we've been forgiven? I'm not sure if you've ever thought of this question. I know many have. Let me try and say a couple of things about it today. Firstly, let me give you the wrong answer, and then I'll give you the right answer. Jesus has taken all our sins on him. Why must we continue to confess? Here's the wrong answer. The wrong answer is to say that we have to continue to confess because we're terrified that if we don't list all of our individual sins, then somehow they remain unforgiven. That's the wrong answer. This is what I call the impossibility of the Roman Catholic confessional. Now, I don't know if this has been your background, uh, but this is the problem with the Roman Catholic confessional. This idea that you have to confess each one of your sins, even as a believer, and that unless you do, they remain unforgiven, they remain held against you, and at some point there has to be a reckoning, either in this life or in this thing that they will call purgatory. I call this the impossibility of the Roman Catholic confessional Because, to put it really bluntly, how could you confess all of your sins? We're oblivious to so much of the harm that we cause. We don't even know that we've done it. Thankfully, at one level, we're unaware. But if the requirement is that we have to confess all the sins that we've ever committed, none of us could ever do so. And worse than that, here's the other reason why this is the wrong answer, is because it paints God in a pretty bad light, doesn't it? It makes God look as if he's a, a nitpicky legalistic pedant who's just waiting to ping us for even the smallest infringement. When surely our maker, he sees the orientation and the desire of our heart and sees how important that is. So if Jesus has taken all of our sins on him at the cross, why do we continue to to confess? Well, here's the right answer. We continue to do so because repentance is necessary in every relationship for its ongoing health. Repentance is necessary in every relationship for its ongoing health. Uh, Can I ask you, has saying sorry ever made things worse? Uh, I said last week that I'm married, uh, married to Wendy. We've been married for 18 years, 18 and a half years now, actually. And so 18 and a half years ago, uh, my wife stood before all our friends and family, before God himself, and promised to love me with an unfailing love. Uh, now, I did also, right? But this is a story from my perspective. So that's what she said. She'd love me with an unfailing love. But if I think that that means that I never need to apologize... My marriage will never be anything more than cordial or superficial. And what's more, I'll never experience the depth of relationship which Psalm 85 imagines, where love and faithfulness meet, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. And if that's the case in my human relationships, then how much more so with God himself? You know, it's the most wonderful relief to ask for forgiveness from someone who you know has already said they will forgive you. I wonder, is that not an example of what Jesus says, means when he says the truth will set you free? That's why we have these wonderful words of comfort for Christians. Again, hopefully this is on the screen from 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, John is not saying that unless we confess our sins, God won't forgive them. Uh, Our forgiveness was won at the cross. But what John is doing is reminding us that God's work of purifying us from all unrighteousness is not yet complete. We know that all too well from our experience because, just like the sons of Korah, we are looking forward still to the full experience of all that God has in store for us. And notice, if you will, one last time, who is the subject of the verb? Who is the one who does the purifying? It's not us. It's God. God purifies us. The God who is faithful and just. And the reason he does so, uh, for one last time, is because what God is like, he is forgiving. That is far more important than anything else. As you go from here uh, into your week ahead, uh, here's a thought for you. Uh, The only way our world can offer hope, the only way in which the world around us can offer hope, is to deny sin. It's to insist that people are good at heart and will make the world into a better place. That's the only way in which the world around us can offer hope which of course I find somewhat ironic then that atheists accuse us of believing in fairy tales to say that people are inherently good and will make the world a better place. By contrast, Christians can both acknowledge the reality of our sin and without being completely devastated still look forward to the hope of God's promise of complete forgiveness Christians, we can say both things. And I think that in the world that we live, with all the cynicism about fake news, I think actually our friends, they want to hear the truth. And they want to hear the truth being spoken. Because only the truth can set us free. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful and forgiving. Uh, We acknowledge that we still fall far short of your glory. But we thank you for the forgiveness that was won for us by the Lord Jesus at the cross. And we look forward to that day when, in the power of your Spirit, we will have been transformed and made anew. Till then we ask that you might help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, to marvel at his compassion and at his love. And we pray that in this week ahead, you might give us opportunities to share that good news with all around us. Amen.